The son of a pastor, Leonard Woolley, was born in 1880. He studied theology, graduated from Oxford, and eventually went into archaeology. In the field, he explored sites in North Africa and Syria, before venturing through the Middle East with T.E. Lawrence, later known as Lawrence of Arabia. Woolley spent two years of World War I in a Turkish prison camp, until, finally, after the war ended, he found himself digging at the ancient city of Ur in 1922. It was there that he started to fully unearth an enormous structure, a mountain of a building, and maybe a memory of the world of Noah's kids. Genesis doesn't give us a lot of detail about the history of the world right after the Flood, and it's such early history that archaeologists haven't found other documents describing it. But initially, Noah and all his descendants probably still lived in a single community near where the Ark landed, near to whatever settlement Noah first established when he left the ship. For years, the population would have been only the children and grandchildren and cousins of an extended family. But after Ham mocked Noah, the settlement was perhaps never the same. Ham had driven a wedge into the relationship, and I think people began to take sides, and there came to be two factions. One group maybe remained loyal to Noah and Shem and the others who wanted to follow God. The others, perhaps led by Ham, chose a different path. And just as with the story of Cain before the flood, over time, more and more people sided with Ham. Until, for the second time in his life, Noah would have been in the minority. I imagine, as he'd done before, Noah tried to persuade people to follow God. Instead, the rest of the world decided to go their own way. The timeline on what happened next is unclear, but probably around a hundred or so years after the flood, as the population grew to a thousand, or given another few decades, thirty thousand people, those who didn't want to follow God decided it was time to move. You can picture them loading furniture and supplies onto wagons or sledges, tying packs on donkeys and camels and yoking oxen together, because they were leaving Ararat behind. This had to be a hard day for Noah. He'd been in this position before. He'd stood alone when the whole world rebelled against God in the days leading up to the flood. But this, this was different as he perhaps stood in his doorway, next to the garden he'd planted, and looked down on his little town. He saw a place that would soon be a ghost town of empty streets and buildings. And he wasn't watching distant relatives abandon God. He was watching his own children, his own grandchildren. And he was seeing them repeat the mistakes of the past. I can picture Noah standing there silent, knowing that these children were following the same path that Cain traveled down. Perhaps like Cain, hoping to leave God behind. And I wonder how overwhelming it would be, all those memories of that century of building the ark, that hundred years of being mocked, all of that washing over him as he watched the process start all over so soon after the flood, so soon after God had washed the world clean and given humans a fresh start. That's how I imagine that day for Noah. But for the people in the caravan, Maybe the motives weren't so clear. 
Sure, some of them might have wanted to leave the Ark and that history behind, but others maybe went for the adventure. Maybe they wanted to explore. Perhaps that first little settlement was getting too small, and they looked for greener pastures. Regardless of the reason, you have to think it would have been an incredible trip. People scouting ahead to map the road and discovering valleys and mountains, places that had perhaps never been seen before. It was an age of discovery long before the one we talk about today. Even so, though, there would have been a small handful of people in that procession who would have had a different reaction. If Ham or Japheth and their wives were part of the crowd, I wonder if they were more thoughtful, perhaps riding quietly. For them, the barren rocky mountains, the cliffs, the gorges, the scrubby plants and trees just beginning to grow again, all of that would be compared in their minds with the world they grew up in before the flood. The world that showed the beauty of creation with lush gardens and towering cypresses. The world of the Garden of Eden. For those few people, everything they saw would be a reminder of that world that was now destroyed when people rebelled against God. And I wonder if they thought about how they were repeating that history, doing those same things again. And as they traveled, Genesis says that migration of people came to the plain of Shinar. Like any other ancient geography, there's debate about the location of Shinar. But the general opinion, based on traditional stories and archaeology, is that this is the river plain between the Tigris and Euphrates in modern-day Iraq, with scholars most often zeroing in on southern Iraq. This might not be what you would consider lush farmland, but it's important to remember two things. First, right after the flood, the weather might have been friendlier. Maybe the area was less of a desert than we think of today. Second, this valley has rivers. On the northern side of the plain is the Tigris, flowing 1,100 miles from Turkey to the Persian Gulf. To the south, running parallel, is the Euphrates, a name that means sweet water. It's the largest river in the area, and in the Bible, it's often just called the river, or the Great River. This plain the people found is Mesopotamia, Greek for land between the rivers. Imagine coming out onto this river plain and looking around at the land all about. It's flat and wide. There's plenty of room for everyone to build homes and dig channels and canals for irrigating great fields of crops. There's room for grazing flocks and herds. And it's here they decide to settle. At this point, Genesis makes it clear that everyone spoke the same language. Literally, they were of one lip and of words one which some scholars take to mean that both the vocabulary and pronunciation that everyone used was the same. There weren't even different dialects or accents. This is what you'd expect. They were all descendants of Noah, who was still alive. So not only was it the same language, but with Noah born only 126 years after Adam died, it was probably also the same language that Adam and Eve spoke at creation. That said, there may also be an undertone to this phrase that they all spoke the same language. That can be both literal and metaphorical. It could also suggest that everyone was of one mind, that they all thought the same thoughts. A society that, from the grassroots, agreed about everything. Now, I've described these people as a group that was leaving God behind, but up to this point in the story, you wouldn't know it. You could give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they were just pioneers searching for good farmland, looking for a nice climate and room to grow food and raise their families. 
then comes the thing that they say when they decide to settle here in the plain of Shinar. Because it's at this point that the people say to one another, quote, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, with its top and heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. End quote. There's three things to notice here. First, this is a group project. The story doesn't act like this is the directive of a dictator to his slaves. It's the story of people working together toward a goal. Building this city wasn't top-down. It was a collective decision. And they give two reasons. First, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Today, we think of making a name as wanting fame or importance, leaving a legacy. And it has that in there. But there's another element that we don't often think of. In the Bible, making a name is something God does. The people here, they're announcing plans to make a name for themselves. They want to take control away from God. That's the first reason. Second, they say they're building the city and tower to avoid being scattered. This probably refers to God's command after Noah left the ark that people were supposed to multiply and fill the earth. And you can imagine Noah and Shem and others trying to remind people of that command. But this group of travelers, and it appears it was most of the people of the earth, they didn't want to do that. This might be why they'd come to such a large open plain. It was a place where they could make a new settlement, where they could all live together, where they could team up to build a city and a tower to avoid being scattered. Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his telling of this story, written about 93 AD, offers some background. Josephus claims that one of Ham's grandsons, a man named Nimrod, convinced everyone that God's goal was to get them to spread out and separate from one another so God could oppress and control them. Going further, Nimrod convinced them that they shouldn't give God credit for their happiness, but should see happiness as a result of their own hard work and bravery. And Josephus adds another detail, too. He says that the reason for the tower, the reason for it to reach to the heavens, was to make a place where people could be above the height the flood reached, a tower so tall God wouldn't be able to drown them with any future flood a place where they would be beyond God's power. I should say here that scholars argue about this. More than one suggests that if surviving a flood was the goal, they would have built the tower on a mountain, not a floodplain near large rivers. But those scholars leave out the fact that wherever this tower was built, it would have to be close enough to where the people lived, where the city and fields and the food and manpower was located construction of the tower would need the support of a city, and if the people were to survive a future flood, the tower had to be close enough for people to escape there when that flood came. We don't know that surviving a flood was the goal, but it fits with everything else that's going on. It fits with people who wanted independence from God, but knew there was a problem. They could see physical evidence of the flood all around them. There were people there who had lived through it and could give an eyewitness account. They knew they couldn't deny the flood happened, but not following God, they probably didn't trust him either, and they wouldn't trust his promise that he wouldn't send a future flood to cover the earth. Instead, they needed a backup plan, something of their own creation that would put them beyond the reach of God. 
And we know from archaeology in the area that people who came later thought that heaven was a solid surface, perhaps that the sky was a dome over the earth. So these people perhaps believed they could build a tower to reach that dome, a tower to heaven that would put them on the same level as God. Think about that image for a moment. These ideas have come up at least a couple of times already. Lucifer, the angel in heaven, wanted to displace God. Eve, in listening to the serpent and eating the fruit in Eden, she wanted to be like God. Cain brought the fruits of his own efforts, his own works, as an offering rather than an offering of obedience. And the word used here for dwelling in the plain of Shinar, that's the same word used for Cain, dwelling in the land of Nod after he murdered Abel. And the only reference to city building comes from that story, because that's what Cain did when he left God behind. See the pattern? The people after the flood are doing the same things that led to the flood in the first place. They're repeating past mistakes, trying to reach heaven by their own efforts, and trying to take God's place. And with that idea running through their mind, let's talk about the tower. When the people decided to build a tower, they named two materials. They said they'd use brick for stone and tar for mortar. First, the brick. Unlike Egypt or other places around the world, the plain that the Tigris and Euphrates rivers flow through doesn't have a good source of stone. There was nowhere for people to go and quarry rocks to use for buildings. What that area does have, though, is soil made up of clay mixed with sand, just right for making bricks. The problem, though, is that sun-dried bricks are really only good for houses. They absorb water in the air and erode in rain and storms. It's not the best for surviving a flood. Instead, the trick is to kiln-dry the bricks, or, as Genesis puts it, to, quote, burn them thoroughly, end quote. This makes the brick durable, because heat drives water out of the minerals in the clay and oxygen bonds crosslink, making the clay rigid and water-resistant. A modern kiln-fired brick has to support 2,500 pounds per square inch. The bricks these people were building probably wouldn't have been that good since they fired their kilns at a lower temperature than we do today, but I'll get back to that after I talk about the other ingredient, because you don't just need bricks, you need glue. Today, we use mortar to glue bricks together. Mortar is a mixture of water, sand, and a binder. This binder is usually cement, made of various things, including lime, as in limestone, because that's where it often comes from. Limestone is made of calcium carbonate. If you take a chunk of it and heat it in a fire or a kiln, it boils off carbon dioxide and turns into calcium oxide. You grind up that calcium oxide and mix it with water and sand to get what's called lime mortar. If, like the Romans, you wanted to make the mortar work underwater, you add something with a silicate in it, in their case, volcanic ash, and the mortar will cure and harden even under the sea. That's the chemistry of mortar and cement today. But in this story, Genesis says that they used tar for mortar. And tar is something else entirely. You can call it tar or asphalt or bitumen, but think of it as really thick oil. Today, you might picture oil rigs and drilling for it underground. But that's not the only option. Shinar is in Iraq, and if you go back a couple hundred to a couple thousand years, people talk of oil seeps on the surface of the ground. 
places where oil boiled up and broke through the surface. In these pools, the lighter weight oil evaporates and leaves ponds of thick tar or asphalt behind. One record mentions a fountain close enough to a tributary of the Euphrates that the globs the seeps spat out floated into the river, drifting as tar balls right into the Euphrates and on downriver to where it could be collected, and, just as in this story, used to build cities with the tar as mortar. That said, tar looks like a terrible alternative to modern mortar. Mortar hardens to a solid mass. Tar softens when it gets hot. You can see this making a building unstable, bricks slipping to the side and getting pushed out of place. But if you can get around that by stacking bricks so they interlock, tar does have some helpful features, because tar is waterproof. There are records of people using these tar seeps as a wash to waterproof their boats, and Josephus says that the builders of this tower in Genesis had the same thing in mind. They used the tar for the same reason Noah coated the ark with pitch, to make the tower waterproof. And if you look at it that way, compared to modern mortar, tar, or asphalt, is fantastic. First, it's flexible. Modern mortar will crack, but tar will stretch. Second, if the tar does split, when you heat it up, perhaps in hot sunshine, it can flow and reseal itself. Finally, remember how I mentioned that the bricks were baked at a lower temperature than bricks today? Well, unlike modern bricks that are heated to around 900 to 1100 degrees Celsius, the kiln-fired bricks they used to build with in ancient Mesopotamia were only heated to 550 to 600 degrees. This leaves large open pores in the surface of the brick, and those pores form openings that allow the soft, sticky asphalt to seep in, gripping and sealing the surfaces of the bricks and binding them to one another. Archaeologists say that even today, on other buildings around 3,000 years old that were built with the same brick and tar technique, it's nearly impossible to remove a brick from the wall without destroying it, because of asphalt's iron hold. With those details in mind, brick for stone and tar for mortar might not look so bad. And as far as looks go, the best guess we have for the shape of the building comes from the ancient towers that still exist in that river valley today. These towers were built later, but they are still thousands of years old, and they suggest that what was being built was less of a skyscraper and more like a mountain, something called a ziggurat. The word ziggurat comes from the ancient word zakaru, meaning to build high and it describes a pyramid-like building with a large base that's built in levels, each level stepping back a little as it goes toward the top. Archaeologists have found the remains of at least 30 of these ziggurats scattered about the region, ranging from 60 feet to almost 200 feet long at the base, and there are references to even more in various ancient writings. One of the largest and best surviving examples is the ziggurat at the ancient city of Ur in Iraq. It was this enormous building that Leonard Woolley unearthed during the 1920s. It measures 210 feet by 150 feet at the base. It originally stood 70 to 100 feet tall. And just like Genesis describes for the tower in this story, it was built with burnt brick secured together with tar. For imagining the building in this story, think of something like that. A great mountain of bricks that goes up in a giant stair-stepping pattern each level smaller than the one before it. 
But there's one key difference between a ziggurat and a temple or a pyramid. Ziggurats don't have any rooms inside. Instead, it's a structure of mud brick that's filled with dirt, and only the outside was faced with the kiln-dried bricks. There was nothing inside. The main feature was a staircase, or a ramp, that went up the outsides to the top, where there was a small room with a bed and a table, apparently set up for a god to use. And this idea of a staircase to God shows up in the names ancient people gave their ziggurats. They'd call them things like Temple of the Foundation of Heaven and Earth, or Temple that Links Heaven and Earth, or Temple of the Stairway to Pure Heaven. And one source suggested that the ziggurat's main function was to be a stairway. We don't know that the tower these people in Genesis built followed that same pattern, but the similarities are interesting, right? A tower whose main purpose was to support a stairway to heaven? But just how tall could that staircase be? The tallest brick skyscraper in the United States is the Monadnock Building in Chicago, which was completed in 1891. It reaches 215 feet, 16 stories up, into the Chicago skyline, and it's built of unreinforced brick. But Building with brick instead of steel has its drawbacks. While the walls at the top of the tower are 12 inches thick, at the bottom they have to span 6 feet from the outside to the inside. That makes 200 feet look like the feasible upper limit for a brick tower. But remember, ziggurats have nothing inside. The wall is as wide as the tower, so the height only depends on how wide you're willing to make the base. Just like natural mountains, the larger the base, the taller the tower can go. And this fits with Josephus, who describes this tower saying it got to be very tall, but didn't seem that way because of how wide it was. It's true, eventually the bricks at the base of the tower would begin to crush under the weight bearing down on them, but even then, the tower could still continue upward, limited only by its angle of repose. To understand the angle of repose, think of a sand dune. No matter how tall a dune gets, it always has the same steepness of around 32 degrees. This is its angle of repose. If you piled more sand on top, most of the sand would flow down the sides and only a little would pile up, always maintaining the same steepness. Every material has some angle of repose, some angle that it will pile up at. So for this tower, even if they built it so tall that the bricks at the bottom crushed into a mass of brick dust and asphalt, the tower would still get taller, following the angle of repose for bricks and asphalt. I don't know that this was their plan, that they really thought they could reach the dome of heaven. But whatever they really planned to achieve, Josephus says the people went about the project with enthusiasm. Think about what this would have looked like. Imagine a few hundred to a few thousand people dividing up into teams. Some of them would have been collecting the clay and hauling it to the brick-making group. That team pressed the clay into molds. We don't know the size of the molds. Some bricks discovered in the Middle East weigh about 33 pounds and are a foot long and a foot wide and just under 3 inches thick, while others are more than 2 feet on a side and 9 inches thick. But whatever the specific size, workers would press them into the mold and then let them sun dry and take them to a kiln that, given the number of bricks they had to make, might have been kept constantly burning, perhaps using animal dung as the fuel. Another team would have been collecting and hauling tar, maybe skimming it from the river or gathering it from the open pools found in the area. 
Imagine a line of people carrying full jars while others returned with empty ones. Picture people streaming back and forth between the construction site and whatever tar pits they could find, the edges of their paths, black with all the places where the tar had splashed or dripped as they carried it or hauled it in wagons. As other people stocked the brick and tar, groups of masons at the building site went about their work much like masons today, laying a thick bed of tar on top of one course and then pressing the next brick down into it. Behind them, other workers follow along, cleaning joints, adding tar into any gaps, pouring a thinner mixture of oil down and around the brick to make sure it was well sealed. And if they were thinking it was to survive a flood, you can imagine them saying to one another that the people before the flood only died because they weren't prepared, and that the next time, the next time it would be different. If or when God sent another flood, they'd be ready. And regarding their plan to make a name for themselves, Philo Judaeus, a philosopher from around 2,000 years ago, claims that the builders each engraved their names on the bricks. You can imagine them doing it, wanting people to always be able to come and see who built this tower, to record for the future who the people were, who weren't afraid to defy God. We don't know how long this went on. Josephus says the tower grew quickly. Other traditions say it went on for 40 or more years. And likewise, we don't know how tall the tower got. I've seen references to 300 feet, an eighth of a mile, a mile, or up to 12 miles, though that's hard to believe. Whatever the specifics might be, it's at this point, as people build the tower, that the story shifts focus. Because God takes notice of what's going on, and the story moves from building the tower to God coming to investigate. Genesis says, quote, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. End quote. Do you notice the irony there? These people were so proud of themselves for building a tower to heaven, a tower that could reach up to God. And it was so short, God had to come down to see it. But the whole fact that God is investigating is interesting. Because this is already a theme so far in Genesis. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God came to the garden and investigated what had happened. After Cain killed Abel, God came and asked Cain about it. Before the flood, God looked down at what the world had become. He investigated. And then he told Noah to build the ark. And here it is again. God comes down to investigate, to see the tower people are building. God knows everything. But Genesis still describes him as a God who doesn't prejudge, but purposely looks into things before drawing a conclusion. An ancient Jewish scholar took this as a lesson for humans, that we should examine all the evidence before we pass judgment. God comes down to see the city and the tower people are building, and God says, quote, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them." End quote. If these people kept working together like this, kept cooperating to rebel against God, there's nothing they wouldn't try to do. If God let them go through with it and be successful at building this empire in the new world, an empire specifically intended to keep people from being scattered, perhaps even to keep people from thinking differently, you can see how the world would turn right back into what it had been before the flood a place where the people who wanted to follow God were reduced to only eight. Cooperation and working together 
is only a virtue if it is directed toward the right goal. If these people were going to cooperate in rebelling, cooperate in doing evil, it was better for God to stop the teamwork. If he hadn't intervened, this tower would have been only the start of their plans. So God chose to do something. God says, quote, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. End quote. And in a moment, all these people who had one language, one intent, and one purpose, now they can't make sense of each other. Based on the wording in Genesis, some scholars suggest that maybe it wasn't new languages, but a different method of pronouncing the same words, or people connecting those words with different ideas. Even today, in related languages like Spanish and Italian, you can get this. Burro in Spanish means small donkey. In Italian, it means butter. What if every word in your language went that way? What if bread to one person meant brick to another? What if water meant tar? What if help meant go away? All these languages just appear. And this fits with the best we found out from history. Researchers trying to build a family tree of languages trace different dialects and languages back to where they split. But they've never gotten back to the trunk. Never back to the one language all the others branched off of. Instead, they only get families of languages. Separate trees that appear unrelated to each other. This is just what Genesis describes. Different languages just appear. Languages that are different enough that people can't communicate. There don't have to be many of them, not a different one for each person, but maybe for each family or tribe. Just enough to divide the population into different groups. It's only a small push, but it completely derails their plans to build a city and a tower. The simplest conversations fall apart. You can imagine people shouting at one another, hoping that will make them understand. Confusion becomes disagreement. Disagreements become fights. And this is where Genesis names the city. It says it was known as Babel, a word that sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. People thought they could make a name for themselves, reach heaven on their own, create their own legacy by building this city and this tower. And in a sense, they did. But the legacy wasn't what they'd planned. Instead, if they are remembered at all today, it's only as the foolish builders of Babel, the city of confusion. It's a simple lesson, right? Refusing to follow God, refusing to trust him, only leads to disaster and confusion. It's a simple lesson, but one we're still learning today. When you ignore God, you only end up confused. It was true 4,000 years ago when people tried to build a tower to heaven, and it's still true today when we call Bible stories fables, myths, and legends, and dismiss the history God has given us, choosing instead to build our own towering theories. It led to confusion before, and it still confuses us today. Instead, you can trust God, trust the facts found in the Bible. That's where the reliable history comes from. And that brings me around to the other part of the story of the Tower of Babel. It brings me to the other faction I mentioned earlier, the people who did trust God, even back then. Noah had lived through the moral collapse of the world before the flood and through the flood itself, so I doubt he was part of the Babel construction project. Shem might have been the same way. 
In fact, based on the way the story is written in Genesis, a whole branch of the family probably wasn't involved in rebelling against God and building this tower. Genesis lists most of the families of the world, then it tells the story of building the city and tower of Babel, then it lists the last branch of the family. It suggests, maybe, that this last branch wasn't involved in the rebellion. Instead, as everyone left for Shinar, that part of the family probably stayed faithful. And this branch was some of Shem's kids. Two years after the flood, Shem had a son he named Arphaxad. 35 years later, Arphaxad had Shelah. 30 years after that, Shelah had Eber. And 34 years after that, Eber had Peleg. Those last two names are especially interesting. Peleg means division, and Genesis says that it was in Peleg's days that the earth was divided. There are various theories, but this probably refers to when God confused men's languages sometime during Peleg's life. And it's Peleg's kids who aren't included in a list of people mentioned right before Genesis tells the story of the Tower of Babel. It's perhaps Peleg's kids, and maybe his father Eber and others going back to Noah, who weren't involved in trying to disobey God. And this Eber, we don't know much about him, but he's where we get the name Hebrew. He was the ancestor of the Hebrews you hear about all through the rest of the Bible. And the idea that this one branch of Eber's family, Peleg's kids, these Hebrews, weren't involved in building the Tower of Babel, that brings up an interesting possibility. Because if they weren't there, maybe their language wasn't scrambled. Instead, Peleg and his kids still spoke the same language as Eber, as Shem, as Noah, as Adam. And if so, there's reason to think that the closest guess we have to the original language spoken by Adam would be the Hebrew used to tell us the history of the world in Genesis. Taken this way, just as the people who rebelled against God ended up being confused, the people who stayed faithful to him kept their understanding and preserved the history of the world all the way back to Adam. We don't know that's the case, but it's an interesting thought. What we do know is what happened to everyone at Babel. The people didn't understand each other, they couldn't agree, they didn't have that single mind anymore, and they started to split up, gathering things and going their different ways. When Noah and his family left the ark and God told them to be fruitful and multiply, it was these people who didn't want to. They specifically wanted to avoid being scattered across the earth. And so there's some irony here that by disobeying God, they scattered even faster and were more isolated than they would have been by obeying him. And Genesis says they dispersed, they spread out on the earth, and they quit building the city. There are various theories about what happened to the tower. One scholar suggested that the reference to scattering also refers to the tower being broken in pieces. Josephus and others mention a legend that a storm blew it down, while some say that part of it burned, part of it sunk in the ground, and part of it was left standing. Remains of one tower in the Middle East show signs of being repeatedly struck by lightning, the electricity melding the topmost bricks and asphalt together into a solid block. You can imagine storm clouds gathering over the Tower of Babel, lightning splitting the top layers, and winds tearing the outer bricks from the building and eroding away the softer interior. But that's only speculation. While there are traditions and theories, the Tower of Babel itself, the tower meant to make a legacy, is gone. But when the people dispersed, 
some of them remained behind, and at some point, they finished building the city. The new name of this city might have originally come from the verb babalu, meaning to scatter or to disappear. But maybe the locals weren't so happy with that embarrassing history. So instead of babalu, they went with bab-ilu, meaning the gate of God or the gate of the gods, a city known to history as Babylon. And if Babylon was renaming itself, it wasn't the only one rewriting history. The people who traveled did too. Noah's grandsons Egypt and Canaan headed west. Ion, the father of the Ionians, went northwest into modern Turkey. Hike, perhaps a great-grandson of Japheth, went north, settling in a land that came to be named Armenia after his son Armanac. While Magog, a grandson of Noah and the founder of the Scythians, went further. Perhaps his children were the first to see the Himalayas. Each group went their own way, but as they did, along with supplies and flocks and herds and their own new, peculiar language, they also took their own version of history. Maybe it was history as they remembered it, or maybe it was history as they chose to remember it. In any case, as they traveled away from Babel, their stories traveled with them, and they passed on to their children and grandchildren memories of the past, memories of a tower, a flood, and the world that existed before it. And in the process, they became the grandfathers of history. Noah's kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids only spread out and repopulated the world when they had to. The next episode is about where they went, and what stories they took with them. Until then, if you want to rummage through more details about the Tower of Babel than fit into this episode, WiderBible.com has articles, references, and links to get you started. The website also has a place for asking questions, and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Scholl. Thanks for listening.